0: Welcome to the Wise Up Texas podcast. Wise Up Texas is a nonpartisan nonprofit empowering and educating Texas South Asians to be informed voters and partake in civic engagement. You can visit our website, wiseuptx.org and find us on all social media platforms. This is Poonam Kaji, Wise Up Texas board member and today's host. We're doing a really fun podcast today. It's similar to our election predictions. We've gathered with our podcast team and we're going to be talking about what we saw happen on election day. So I've got Sana Magani, Zoheb Kadri, Azra Siddiqui, and Ariba Amr here with me. And I'm going to go ahead and kick us off um, to talk about what happened on election day. So we're going to focus on the presidential first. Um, if you were listening to our election predictions podcast, then you know that we expected the delays in counting mail-in ballots, and we knew Pennsylvania would be one of those states causing the delay. That did live out to be reality on Tuesday, November 3rd. Many of us nonetheless stayed up late watching results, knowing that we weren't going to get the answers. As the week went on, two things happened. One, Uh, Biden told folks to wait and see how the ballot counting goes, but he sent a message that he felt confident that he was going to win or that he was winning as the counts were coming in. And two, President Trump began sending a message that votes that are still being counted should not be counted. And he coined a new term, legal votes, to say that um, the votes that were already counted were legal and suggesting that some other votes were not legal. On Saturday, November 7th, Pennsylvania was called for Biden, taking him well over the electoral votes needed to win. At at this point, just to be clear, Biden had also won the popular vote. Uh, That evening, President-elect Biden and um, Madame Vice President-to-be Kamala Harris gave speeches. Uh, Trump has not yet conceded and he's pursuing a number of lawsuits. I just wanna give a quick note on the ongoing litigation with Trump um, and what he's pursuing in various courts. Um, We had also talked about that on our predictions podcast and we talked a little bit about Bush v. Gore um, back from 2000 and, and how that ended up in litigation. I do wanna point out the difference there was that one state had not been called and the votes in that state were necessary to determine a winner. And that was the state of Florida. Here, the lawsuits that have been brought in Pennsylvania and other states are about a variety of allegations around poll watchers and alleged fraud. Uh, But unlike Gore's situation in 2000, there isn't one recount in any of these states, that would bring Trump to a victory. So even with the lawsuits, there's no clear path to victory for President Trump. But you know, this thing isn't over until it's over. So let's just start off with this question: How does this really end? You know, between now and January 21, what happens? Does Trump concede? Does some of this litigation work out in his favor? Um, do you see anything else transpiring? Um, Ariba, I'm gonna start with you. What do you think? How is this gonna end? Yeah, so, I mean, it's definitely it's
1: definitely been wild. Um, I have not experienced a lot of elections um, in my life being only 20 years old, but this is definitely, if I were to recall any, this seems like it would be the craziest one. Um, I, you know, and I'm speaking solely on speculation. It just from the looks, if you were to go on Trump's Twitter, it's he's very much pushing the narrative that there are fraud votes, or there are votes that need to be tossed out, or there are votes that were somehow not counted. But the Biden campaign has definitely said something along the lines of like, or the Biden campaign in general, is just working towards what it seems to be his future presidency. But I honestly don't think I I don't expect Trump to concede anytime soon. It seems like we might just have to wait till January when everything's officially decided and the inauguration happens. And then that's when it's said and done.
2: I'll echo uh, kind of what Eriva was, was talking about. H- how do I see this ending? I see this with, you know, uh, a President Biden and a Vice President Harris. Um, I think until that time, we're gonna see a lot of tweets from the current president about, um, I just looked at Twitter before getting on this podcast mm-hmm. about, you know, dead people voted and there's been illegal ballots that have been counted and ballots with his, uh, with his name have been burned and thrown away. So I think the Trump team will probably keep fighting this um, as much as they can in the courts. I think the uh, Biden-Harris team will be uh, working towards transition. uh, And they've been, you know, they've put people in place of who his chief of staff will be and senior advisor and all that. I think they'll continue to do that. Uh, But I don't see a, uh, uh, you know, a a nice letter written by uh, President Trump to president, well, you know, future president Biden or, you know, a, you know, a nice, you know, sit down in front of the media, uh, like uh, Obama and, and Trump had uh, in 2016.
3: You know, something that should also be discussed is we are seeing the current president tweeting all these things about alleged voter fraud, and a lot of his litigation and lawsuits are not being successful, they're not going anywhere, but it is very dangerous because you are delegitimizing the election, the electoral process, and there is no proof behind it. Like there has been no proof that has been given by the Trump campaign or in any of their alleged lawsuits. It seems like they're just throwing and trying to see whatever sticks on the wall if they are able to proceed with any other litigation. And I think that's what's going to be problematic in the long run.
0: As we talk about this, I think it's interesting to note that we saw more voter turnout than ever in history. As an organization that worked so hard to get out the vote and get people excited about voting, that might be the the silver lining of this election that we saw so many people come out and vote. I think, Azra, your point about um, undermining our electoral process is, is maybe the k- kind of forecasting ahead. You know, will people have this same enthusiasm and excitement about voting if we have leaders who... Are trying to convince voters that um, our electoral system is, is somehow profoundly broken and, and, and you know, subject to fraud.
2: Yeah, I mean, for this year we saw, this, I, I believe, the second highest uh, voter turnout since the post-World War II era. Uh, in 1960, it was 63.8 percent, and this current um, election cycle, we're at 62 percent. I think a lot of it uh, just has to do with a really good mobilization organization by, or, you know, by organizations like. Wise up tech we saw a lot of South Asian organizations come out, get people registered to vote, got people educated, got people really motivated to go out. And and I think we saw that across the board, uh, whether it be the lot, you know, Latinx community, the black community, students, um, you know, as polarizing as 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 twenty sixteen was, uh, I think people really realized the stakes and the uh, gravity that this election was gonna bring.
0: I know in in Texas um, we we mirrored that same thing. I w- was personally really excited to see our numbers here in Texas because we went up nine uh, percent in our voter turnout. Um, you know, fifty percent voter turnout from eligible voters um, in our last election cycle. So you know, it's always kind of a bummer in Texas. You're like half the people that could vote don't even go. Um, we got up to fifty nine percent this year, so that's a big. Difference, And I think keeping all those voters engaged will be will be a really great challenge for organizations like ours in the future. Um, we had a fun game here on our last podcast about how close will Texas be on the presidential. Texas has typically been a landslide for the Republican candidate. And we guessed would it be more than five percent different or less than five percent different? And Ezra actually guessed exactly five percent. And it ended up being five eight percent difference between Trump and Biden. So that was a really a really pretty accurate, Ezra. So <laughs> you want to talk to our listeners about what we saw here in Texas in terms of voter turnout and that um, breakdown?
3: Yeah, it seemed that uh, we we had record voter turnout. Um, this election cycle which was really exciting we did see a lot of aapi communities really organized latino communities african-american communities really organized to push um registration to vote as well as we saw like the republican party was doing a lot of voter registration as well going door to door um so we saw a lot of people being very active this election cycle um you know given that you know this presidential cycle they say it was you know, you have the Democrats saying it was the battle for the soul of our nation. You have the Republicans saying, keep America great, you know, continuing with their agenda from what they had on their platform in 2016. It became, it, it seemed like it was a very contentious election. And that's why so many people wanted to get out and have their voices heard. I, I maybe just take pessimistic
0: view, which I tend to do. I'm a little worried. How do we keep these people involved? How do we continue voter engagement so that they do see the importance in coming out again in 2022 and 2024? Or was it that this election was just unprecedented, as everyone has said, with this, you know, kind of very divisive president, quite frankly, you kind of either love him or hate him and people really came, came out to reflect their views um, and a pandemic. So I mean, very strange times that we're living in. So how, how, do you all think we can keep this up here in Texas?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think historically you, you always see uh, numbers go, you know, trend downwards uh, during the midterm. I don't expect anything different in, in 2022. Um, but I, in terms of keeping, you know, the AAPI community engaged or keeping other communities engaged, I think it can be done. I think organizing can't be something that you do every two years or every four years and then have to start all over and start from scratch. Uh, I think it would be constantly um you know be fighting Uh, even if it's on an election it's it's you know the texas house and texas senate is in session right there's gonna be a lot of really important uh bills being voted on and brought to the floor even during a pandemic it's about keeping our uh communities engaged and and educated on what's going on then as soon as that's over people are going to be declaring for 2022 and then as soon as 22 ends literally within a few months then it's the next session and then it's you know it's it's a it's a continuous cycle and it's just about keeping people engaged and and, and motivated and, and i really do hope you know even though i wouldn't be shocked if if there's a um you know tr- you know voting trend goes downward again in, in the midterm i really do hope people um, you know stay engaged I do hope groups like wise up and um you know um I can't remember, like Jolt, you know, from the Latinx community and, and, you know, just a lot of these student organizers. I hope they keep doing the work and, you know, I hope we, you know, I hope they prove me wrong, actually. I hope we see great numbers in 2022. But
4: Same, yeah. I will say, though, that, you know, listening to Sohev, you know, I I do think he may be right that we will see that downward trend in the midterm elections, but I I am really inspired by the youth right now. I'm really inspired by student activists, by college students. I see Ariva nodding her head because she's a part of that movement of young people who are just so inspiring and so willing to say that, you know what, we want to make a difference and we're going to fight and organize and push uh, and we're going to make it happen. You saw that over the summer with the Black Lives Matter movement, you see that now. And it's very inspiring, even with, um, I think, the youth that's really involved with um, climate change. You see that nationally, globally, in fact. That they're young people rallying around causes that are important to them, and that they're imagining a better world for all of us, right? And so I think that even though there may be that you know downward trend, we'll continue to see more young people engaged. And whether that like, they're on college campuses or you know in their local city governance, governance, they're going to continue to be involved. And I think they're going to push all of us to say enough is enough. We have to do something about it. And so I'm excited to see that group continue to grow and flourish. And they're going to become uh, active voters. Uh, many of them were not uh, eligible to vote, but were out in the streets protesting and marching and organizing, but they're going to, to be of age soon. And so it'll be interesting to continue to follow that group that's been so politically involved, whether they were able to vote or not.
1: Yeah, I have to, I have to second that in the sense where, I mean, I don't know how other generations youth have act, acted, but Um, obviously I have firsthand experience on how a couple of people in my generation are acting in regards to the election. And one of the biggest things that I'm hearing in my conversations with just peers is that, you know, the fight is not over. Whatever your fight is, like there are a lot of people in my generation saying like, it's not over. They're pushing to hold the upcoming administration accountable. There's a lot of talk about legislation. I really do think that Hopefully we can see, specifically in regards to youth turnout, we can see youth voter turnout increase proportionately in the next couple of years. I know I was reading reading an article, I think from The Guardian, that suggested that there was as much of a 10% increase in youth voter turnout in the 11 battleground states this time. I mean, that that information is not certified. Um, and so I'll definitely, I'll definitely give that disclaimer. But I, I don't doubt if there are increases in youth voter turnout. I definitely, I definitely believe it. And just by casual discourse, I can tell that a lot of, a lot of my youth now, or lo- not my youth, <laughs> a lot of my peers now, are still as engaged as they were prior to the election. I think everyone is very passionate about holding the upcoming administration accountable. Um, And I think maybe that's just a byproduct of being raised in a very divisive country with a divisive president who may not, for some people they stand, he stood for their values and for some people they didn't. And it was just, yeah, I think, I I hope that youth will continue to be as engaged as they were prior to the election. And I bet that they will.
3: And I kind of want to add on about the South Asian community. You know, when I started Wise Up Texas in 2015, there was not that much interest as to what was going on in like the texas legislative session the 2016 election i think things got really interesting after trump came into office and i think that's when i saw the surge of the south asian community really come into full force of trying to register voters to get people interested um i even think you know, for Wise of Texas, we've always tracked legislative bills to make sure the community is informed. We call it Bills Boggle Hey," kind of a fun um, pun off of Bill Boggle Hey," but Um, we're seeing that this cycle, that the South Asian community is actually not just focusing on the elections and the results, but now we're like, okay, well, what's next? Like, what do we do next? And we're starting to see that interest as well. So I think, yeah, there is going to be a downturn in 2022, but maybe it won't be as big of a downturn as it has been in the past, because we're seeing that people are still continuing the process of keeping up with their legislators and, you know, making sure that they're trying to hold them accountable. So I'm kind of hopeful for that.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, am going to combine two of my questions into one. I, I think one of the things, um, especially for people who are kind of newly getting engaged into politics, one of the things about this election cycle that maybe was a little shocking or blindsided them was a lot of the numbers were just really off this year. The overall polling was super off. Um, I think also if you, now they're dividing up the data and saying, okay, it turned out Um, you know, white college voters ended up being these huge swing voters in critical states. Um, whereas Latino voters went, you know, slightly different way in some places that that was expected and they're kind of slicing and dicing it and finding a lot of surprising data and the polls themselves were just very off in terms of how close this election ended up being. So I'll start with, you know, what do you think about the data, the numbers, um, it, you know how, how much did that one surprise you and two like do you think people get kind of frustrated with that? Do you think we should learn some lessons here about numbers?
4: Yeah, I'll say personally, you know using I statements here after the 2016 election, I have written off polls and so they gave me a lot of heartburn then. And even though I promised I wouldn't care too much about them, they still gave me a heartburn this time too. Um, but but I will say like, you know, like you said, when the polls were really off, I think nationally somewhere between an average of the Pew Center published just a couple of days ago that nationally somewhere from between four to eight percentage points, uh, you know, depending on the races in the state, so they were off. And uh, state polling errors were about the same as 2016. So we're finding the same problem from the last election to this election. I think the issue here is that polls are consistently and systematically underrepresenting certain voters. And in the case of the 2016 and 2020 election, we're finding that there that the Trump supporters and maybe the conservative or Republican support voters are underrepresented. I am not um, in, by any means qualified to talk about how polls are set up and the research and study that happens behind them. But it seems that if the polls this year and in 2016 had under were finding underestimated support for even other less controversial Republican candidates, then there is something that needs to be addressed within this community about not just like the rigor of the poll, but also how do we get a more representative poll of what people are actually feeling and thinking? Because it seems to me that they've completely missed that mark, not just once, but now twice. And so it's, it's kind of interesting because um, when you t- think about how you set up a poll and how it needs to be representative of a certain population, if it's consistently missing that the conservative Republican population, then I do think that there has to be some more analysis done to understand what's happened, um, not just in 2016, but I think even more recently. And especially in those state races where there were non-controversial Republican candidates and the polls like grossly uh, underestimated their support. And so that's, I think will be interesting as more of that data comes comes to light.
0: Yeah, Reba, I wanted to give you a chance to chime in here. And just because I know as a journalism major, you may have a sense of polling and how it works and maybe, what what are the journalists saying about this? (laughs) I will say, I mean,
1: I'm I'm speaking on behalf of like a journalism student. I I work at a student newsroom. We're very professional. But um, definitely one of the things I've heard from older journalism professionals is that you know you you have to approach polling very cautiously so a lot of a lot of popular news organizations they themselves do not do the polling they will rely on gallup they'll rely on roper like they they themselves also rely on other organizations but just subjectively one of the things i found out and i think it's reflected in the rhetoric that i'm being taught in my journalism classes is that you have to be very cautious with polls and calling things too early As a journalist, you know, you don't want to misinform the public. And I can say just based on like my my reading of the news, I could be wrong that I saw less news organizations reporting solely on polls when it came to the election and focusing on what they knew. I think that On for our general audience, there are a couple of things that, like, I've been taught to watch for, and I would definitely encourage everyone else to. Is that, you know, first of all, like, when you're looking at a poll, you have to know, like, the pollster. There are a couple, like, big name polling organizations that are held accountable by the public that are more likely to be accurate, for example, Gallup and Roper. But there are smaller special interest polls that might be publicized via social media. So I really encourage everyone to look at who is polling. The second thing is like how they're polling. You may not wanna go, I mean, I understand everyone doesn't have a lot, of this, a lot of time in the world to like look in like the standard sampling techniques, but it is it is a big thing, especially when we're, just, we're discussing how certain communities are being underrepresented in polls essentially. You really wanna look into essentially like, how is this data being collected? Likewise, like how are they asking the question? And again, you know, this might not be stuff that you all do on your own time. I understand it's very, it's very exhausting. But if you're not willing to do that, then in that case, like you know, I, I personally encourage you to be very cautious when looking at polls. I, I trust the major news organizations, or the major polling organizations like Gallup. But at the same time, like at the end of the day, we're predicting the future, and can anyone predict the future? No. Statistics does its best, but it can't, it can't do everything, and so. Yeah, I don't know. That's just that's just my two cents. My main thing, I'm going to agree with Sana here like I I hardly looked at polls prior to the election solely for those reasons because I knew I didn't have the time to double check the polls the way I wanted to and the way I was supposed to be doing it. So I simply just did not look at it unless I absolutely needed to.
2: I think I think the polls were a mess again. I think a lot of it is because people don't realize within the Republican Party there's two parties. There's the Republican Party and then there's Trump Republicans. And I think the polls often miss Trump Republicans. And then one, th- one thing I noticed about the different organizations that do polls, and, and I saw both sides. I saw the Republican side, I saw the Democrat side, I saw both sides kind of making fun of each other. I, like I said, I know nothing about polling, but I think the answer is somewhere in the middle of how to do proper polling. I saw polls that Republicans did where they contacted landlines and i saw dem pollsters and dem activists making fun of them that why are you contacting landlines because most most dem voters sorry most dem pollsters were counting contacting folks by cell phone um but then you know vice versa republicans were like you're only contacting people by cell phone you're missing a large amount of population who doesn't large older amount of population who doesn't have cell phones so that's why we saw in certain certain races, like even here in Texas, congressional races, where the Dem pollster showed the Democrat down by, you know, two points, but the Republican pollster showed the Republican up by eight. And I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. It's just, it's it's just such a weird world we live in, just the way how, how polarizing politics are and how folks are about their politics. So um, hopefully someone much smarter than me can find the uh, the secret formula of how to do this.
3: Can we, add in that one polling um, that I think NPR published of how the different ethnic groups voted for the presidential races. Um, I thought some of the numbers from from that polling, granted if it's how accurate it is or it isn't, um, was really fascinating. I think we see the Democratic Party kind of having this assumption that all minorities fall under their umbrella. And with those numbers, um, which we, we've posted on our social media accounts, um, you know, we saw 35% of Muslims voted for Trump in those numbers. Um, we saw other Asian Americans that also, you know, voted for Trump. And there was this general consensus amongst Democrats that believed that the AAPI and the Muslim communities and other religious communities would fall under the democratic umbrella. And that obviously was not the case. And it seemed that polling really missed that, except this exit polling data that came out that showcased that how how much the polls had missed that type of information. Because I think you know, someone like myself who is very in tune with politics. And even though I don't trust the polls 100%, you know, I'm still reading them. I was very taken aback by those numbers. That was just something I was not expecting. And I think overall, we can say that the Republicans were able to coalesce a very diverse coalition this election cycle um, that, you know, that did vote for Donald Trump. And so I thought that exit polling numbers were really fascinating. was curious if if you don't mind if i jump in on that and if people had some thoughts on on that exit polling data
0: i think that there are definitely some categories of voters that are getting one blocked together that don't need to be blocked you know we kind of talked about this before we started recording that's been a big talking point about the latino vote but ultimately we've learned the latino vote is in fact a variety of different communities that's the same thing we often say about the aapi vote you know, we've talked about that before, that our community kind of gets blocked when it looks at data and when it looks at polling, but it really shouldn't be blocked that way. Um, and it makes it difficult to predict how communities are going to vote. Um, and I think the other thing is, yes, um, certainly, I, I think the Republican Party and President Trump did win over maybe more of these voters, some of them first-time voters, right? First-time voters of color that came out and voted for for Donald Trump. Um, But at the same time, majority of of black men voted for Biden by by a long shot. Majority of black women voted for Biden by a long shot. Majority of Latino voters still voted for Biden by a long shot. So I think the democratic party just needs to learn to understand that these aren't voting blocks which we've talked about a lot. Every community is different. Every voter has to connect with their candidate. And I really think that's one of the biggest, um, maybe flaws in, in politics today is this assumption, the assumptions about voters, right? Just assumptions about how people will vote and what message will resonate with them without talking to them, without getting out and talking to the communities and saying, what is actually the issue for you? Is it being in a more inclusive society or is it an economic issue that's most pressing for you right now? You know, we don't know the answers to those questions until we ask. And I'm sure I'm sure people who work on campaigns do that work, but apparently we need to we need to do it a little better if we want to predict it correctly, because we're obviously predicting it wrong.
4: <laughs> I think too, like there's the the message here is also that that intersectionality matters. So we are not just one thing. You are not just Muslim or just a woman or just Pakistani. Those are all parts of my identity, by the way. But that all of those, there's intersections of all those identities, including your socioeconomic status, um, your gender, um, your sexuality, all of that, right? And so I think we talked about in our our pre, uh, uh, in our elections uh, prediction podcast, how it was really nice to see that we weren't treated as a monolith and I think that's true, right? You saw sort of across the diaspora, all of these groups uh, on both sides. And it was really exciting to see that. But on the same token, I think it's surface level. If you say that, then I, we're going to predict that that entire community will then vote for you know, one candidate, right? That's a very surface level thinking about what does it mean when we say that the AAPI community is not a monolith? Okay, well, we've gotten there and now let's go a little bit further and think about the intersectionality of these identities and what does it mean? Um, So, you know, I think that overall, uh, organizers have learned a lot this this time around and with all these numbers coming out we're going to continue to learn lessons that we're going to bring into how we organize in future elections but it's important to consider that we can no longer just lump people together in groups and say this is how we predict this entire group will uh, vote and and especially for those of us that come you know our parents are immigrants or we ourselves are immigrants and the longer you continue to stay in this country there's different aspects of your identity that become salient and so to just kind of categorize us as one big group would be a grave mistake, but still I'm going to go back to what I said in our last podcast. It's still really exciting though to see the separation of that, you know, in politics and the recognition of that, but it's going to take some work for organizers and organizations like us with Wise Up to continue to support the needs of a very diverse South Asian community.
2: I'm going to bring the organizer perspective for it as a former organizer, I I looked at it in two ways, I think both Democrats and Republicans hopefully now realize they can't take any group for granted. And they have to organize and do outreach towards our respective groups, whether it be Muslims or, or API black Latinx gay community, whatever, um, I think. Um, you can't take any vote for granted. You can't take any vote, uh, any group for granted. And and I really think this election cycle showed that. Uh, as a Muslim, I was shocked that 35 percent of of the community in my community uh, voted for President Trump. You know, due to his rhetoric towards my community. Uh, you know, same thing with a lot of next community. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're not we're not a monolithic community. There's so much thought and background. Um, you know, both lived experiences and 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 and, and whatnot. That 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 lead to um, you know how a person ultimately votes. Uh, so so I I do hope both parties do a better job going into uh, going into the next election cycle. I also think the reason that the um, the, the reason that the Republicans might have done better in, in, in certain demographics was unlike Democrats, Republicans were doing door-to-door canvassing. And I think, as a, as a former organizer, that's the most effective way to reach out to a group of people to actually have conversations with them versus a text or a phone call or, or an email. So I, I wonder, when it's all said and done, you know, whoever does the research and you know does the analysis of of, of 2020, um, how much that played a factor in you know numbers shifting one way or another.
0: There's just so much conversation about how divisive our country is, and certainly President-elect Biden is. Campaigned on a message of unity, and now is making this message of it's time to come together. But that's going to be a challenging thing, especially for, um, you know what Ezra was talking about. We have a a outgoing president that's likely going to undermine this election for for a time to come. So, what is your advice for people on you know we are living in potentially one of the more divisive times in our history. um, That can honestly, I think, lead to some exhaustion, and we need to see people you know, stay engaged. So what's one little bit of advice, try to keep it, you know, brief, something they can remember like a fortune cookie. Um, how can we address how divisive we are and how can we come to a more unified place?
2: I think if, if I had a fortune cookie and I open it up, I would want to say the fight isn't over or something like that. Just because regardless of which side of the aisle you're on um, or who you voted for, there's a lot of injustices in this world, in this country, in our society. And just because, you know, Biden is the president or Trump's the president or Cornyn's the uh, center, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, the results go and whoever's in office, you know, there's a lot of things to be done to make us a more just and equal society uh, from a local level to the, to the federal level. And I, I think you can't stop working and being engaged uh, because everything affects you and every election affects you and every year affects
0: what's your fortune cookie say? How how do we, how do we come to a more unified place?
3: Um, I guess if I open a fortune cookie, I think I would want it to say um, compromises everything. And this is coming more from, I work in legislative policy. I work to pass legislation. I've, you know, that's, that's my full-time job. (laughs) And, you know, I have, notice that you have to work across the aisle and i think we've become such a decisive country where When people are voting, they're like, oh, I can't believe my candidate voted on that other, like from that other political party's bill and stuff like that. And I think people forget to realize that it doesn't matter who is president or who is governor. But at the end of the day, if you want certain good policies passed, you have to work across the aisle. You have to have compromise. Like you may not get the perfect piece of legislation that, you know, the candidate you voted for, um, you know, had on there and that candidate probably had to compromise on that legislation in order for it to get passed. And I think people need to understand and realize that because we've come to a point where compromises is in a very negative connotation and it shouldn't have to be like that. The whole country was, you know, it has its flaws the way the country was built upon, most definitely, but it was meant to, democracy was meant to be a checks and balances situation. And that's what is is playing out and for some reason it's always been like that. But for some reason these days, checks and balances is considered in a very negative way. And we need to change back to where that is the way it's supposed to be. That's the way the country has always been and that compromise is a good thing, not a bad thing.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna like um repeat what I always say to everyone and it's to stay informed and make the effort to be informed. Um I think it's really easy to speak and you should be on issues you're passionate about but I also think it's equally important that you have a basis to your opinion just to make your honestly to make your own argument stronger and to strengthen your own beliefs and honestly by reading about certain issues you might figure it out that you know there might be another way around it kind of speaking to what Azra said um and so yeah you know my biggest thing is to uh read the news um I recommend a lot of nonpartisan news outlets like the Texas Tribune um, they do a great job. wise up does a great job as well. Just make sure that you are reading as much as possible because these are issues that ultimately impact you and the issue that you're speaking on impact other people as well and you want to learn how they impact other people besides yourself
0: yeah I mean I'll, I'll just say for me like when it comes to divisiveness, I think I was watching um Saturday Night Live and Dave Chappelle did his monologue and he said, you know whenever, kind of things happen that create that tension between people, whether it's discrimination or you feel like you've been personally attacked or you feel like a policy is attacking you. He said, I don't hate anyone, I just hate that feeling. And I think that's kind of like a simple emotional thing but let's just, you know, not come from a place of hate. Um, And if, if something's not, feels like it's not going in the way that we think it should or we feel like it's not the America we envisioned, and you hate that feeling, then use that to keep firing you up, but don't hate anyone.
4: I'll say for me, um, what I would want my, I guess, fortune cookie to say, or for, you know, our listeners is to step outside of your echo chambers. I found that in the 2016 election, um, I was really thrown off by a lot of things. And I learned that that's because I had surrounded myself with people who were my echo chamber and sounded like me and thought like me and had ideas like me, which is really nice and supportive when you need that. But it turns out that many of my countrymen and women, um, thought differently, like the people in our, like potentially teachers for my daughter or my neighbors or people that I bump into at the grocery store think dramatically different than I do in my echo chamber does. And it, it no longer, I think it's okay for me to just, sit here and and be in my bubble. But I think in order to build bridges or, and like you all said, to continue to bring people together, you have to talk to your neighbors. You have to talk to people who disagree with you. You have to compromise, like Ezra said, but mostly you have to understand why is it that you feel so strongly and I feel so strongly and where can we find commonality? Where can we find those things that are important for us as people, for our children, for the future of our country? And um, I would just say like, burst your echo chamber, burst that bubble and get out and start making friends with people in the community who think differently, who look differently and and try to figure out like, what is it that is really causing all this division? And where is your little part that you can play in your little corner of the world to start to bring some more unity together? Thank you for that.
3: I kind of want to add one thing, Um, you know, with Wise Up Texas, we're, we're nonpartisan, although we have certain values that we, you know, try and uphold, which is, you know, we're for equality, we're against racism. And, you know, there were a lot of people when we decided to go and be nonpartisan that I think were taken aback by that they expected us to align with a political party. And the reason why I was so against that move is because we are such a divided country and whether that's even amongst the south asian community and as i mentioned earlier like compromise is really important and while there are certain things to not compromise on again like i mentioned injustices inequalities and racism but there are a lot of other things that you may think are the best policies but half the other half the country does not think so and we saw that play out in this election cycle and so that's something that we should have our eyes and ears you know, open to listening and trying to understand the other side instead of just pushing forward an agenda that you know only half the country wants.
0: I want to just really quickly um, let you all know what's going on with the Senate. Um, it is really important to see which party ends up having the majority in the House or the Senate, uh, especially when a new president has come into office and is, has a certain priorities that they want to pass. They need that majority um, often to get things passed through Congress. Right now, we don't know what the outcome of the Senate is going to be. Um, Keep in mind, Republicans have had the majority in the Senate. Democrats were talking about potentially being able to overcome that and take the majority. Um, They picked up one seat and there are two seats in Georgia that are going to run off elections in January. So if you've been hearing a lot about the Georgia Senate races, It's because one, there are two very exciting Senate races and a runoff, so it's like double overtime over here of an election, which is really fun. But also um, these two seats could flip the Senate. So that's why there's so much attention there. As far as United States House of Representatives, um, Democrats should maintain the majority there, but lost a number of races. We'll probably, you know, we'll see what that final number ends up being. They expect it to pick up a few, including here in Texas, They were not able to do that here in Texas. And we're going to talk more about that on our Texas episode. So thank you for listening today. Stay tuned for part two, which we're going to um, have talking about Texas specifically. That is our interview for today. Um, Remember that you can purchase our Wise Up Texas Chai on our website and support um, our cause. Well, Wise Up Texas is a nonpartisan and nonprofit organization, but we welcome interviews with candidates and political leaders who want to reach out to our South Asian followers. Wise Up Texas does not endorse any candidates or political party. You can find a recording of this podcast on most platforms where podcasts are available and select episodes will air on Radio Azad and DFW. Thanks for listening. Get educated, get wiser, and start giving a hoot with Wise Up Texas.